This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 421 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nathan Espinosa. Now, Nathan was a probationary firefighter for LAFD when he fell through the roof of a commercial structure fire. Sustaining significant burns, he was able to crawl his way back up the roof to safety. So there are so many elements to this conversation, the high bar that LA set in his academy and probation, the camaraderie shown by his crew and the high level of training and communication there, the incredible mental health element as he started trying to transition back onto the line after his injuries, the impact on his family of this whole incident and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And as a side note, the book that I wrote, One More Light, is now available on audiobook as of last week. So if you've been waiting to listen to the book, you can now do so on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nathan Espinosa. Enjoy. All right, so Nathan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I know that we had this scheduled last year. There was a series of things that, that uh, you know, pushed it back a little bit, and one of was COVID. So let's kind of break the ice talking about that, and then we'll get into your actual journey. So what have you experienced in, in LA as far as that this year, and, and you know, how, how has the department tried to mitigate it when there were exposures? Um, well, I was, I was fortunate. I, got, I was back to work November. Um, and so I didn't get to experience too much of it, but I mean, from my point, you know, there, there is a, it is our heavy call volume with the COVID calls. Um, I think the department has done, done a great job mitigating the situation in terms of dealing with exposures, high risk patients. Um, 
fortunately for me, I haven't I haven't tested positive for it yet. Yet, um, a couple people at my station have, and they've handled the situation really well. Um, so I mean, I'm part of like station life. Um, we've been, you know, you know, heavily, heavily sanitizing the the station. Um, you know, constantly washing our hands, wearing the proper PPEs, going on calls. Um, we've been having a one in one out rule. So if it's a confirmed COVID patient, only one person will be the guinea pig and they'll go and gown up, suit up, completely covered. And they're dealing with the patient just by themselves. And all of us, the rest of the guys are just outside, you know, standing by. Um, so, I mean, it's been good. You know, they gave out the vaccine. So I was, I was, as soon as they offered it, I jumped right on board to it. Um, just got my second dose and you know, it was easy. It was easy to get my hand on the second dose. You know, you just sign up, go to Dodger Stadium, and, and get uh, get vaccinated. So, I mean, I feel, I feel the department is taking care of us and, and doing the right precautions and everything. So it's been it's been a, a a lot less stressful dealing with this COVID outbreak in LA. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I know there's there's you know varying philosophies on the vaccine you know and i th- i think that you know if, it, if it's trustworthy and it's safe then it's definitely something that you know people should consider but i think it's great that our first responders are getting it because as i've talked about on this uh podcast a lot i don't think people realize how immune compromised we are you know shift workers mm-hmm. doctors nurses police fire um, and, you know, we've seen that. I think, sadly, there's been more COVID deaths, certainly in the police side, than any other line of duty. So oh, I, yeah. I think it's brilliant that the vaccines are there. I know it's by choice still, but, uh, you know, myself, I would definitely get it if I was still working shifts and still exposed. But right now, and I'm, personally, I'm, I'm at the back of the line because I should be. I'm not exposed anymore like you guys are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's... That's why I mean that with the vaccine, it's just it, you don't know how your body's going to respond once you get when, if you test positive and if you get sick. So if this is something I can do to, especially for me, like to protect my family, if I get exposed, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Brilliant. All right. Well, then let's start at the very beginning. Then, so um, tell me where you were born and then your family dynamic, how many siblings, and and what your parents did. Okay, I was uh, born and raised in California, Mission Viejo. Um, I have an older brother, two years older, and a younger sister, two years younger. Um, my brother's name is Gerald, and my sister's name is Sarah. You know, I grew up in Mishaveo. Dad was on the department. Um, he's retired now, Frank Espinosa. And we, um, man, I grew up playing soccer most of my childhood. So that was my, my memories of childhood were soccer. You know, high school, club soccer, college soccer. That's all I did. And, um... It was kind of a a calling, you can say, growing up to, you know, every time my dad would come home, um, you know, knowing he was he was a firefighter and I just I just had to follow his footsteps. There was no other option for me. Um, he was my hero growing up. So, I mean, you know, my childhood going to the station, um, I was just amazed at what he did and what the, those guys did at the station. So that was my childhood, you know, playing soccer and you know, just in awe of, of the fire department. Beautiful. Well, you know, the, the National Fallen Firefighters Association, uh, excuse me, Foundation, did an incredible documentary on what we're about to talk today. And, you know, your dad was in that a lot. And obviously he was moved multiple, you know, in multiple ways 
from the event. Now, did he himself have any near misses or or lose members of his crew during his career? Um, he 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 he's never had a, like a near miss. He's had close calls, um, and he's he has lost uh, people on the on the department. Um, he has every line of like new day of death. Um, he's been. He knows about um, one in particular, Joe DePee. He was at that scene and at that fire, and that has weighed heavily on him. And <clears throat> that's why I think this near miss, especially that you know I'm his son, but I spe- especially because the s- similarities between Joe DePee um, and my incident were, you know, so similar in terms of you know a large commercial. You know things like that, so it 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 hit hard for him. You know, going through the 38 years, he's he's known a lot of people, unfortunately, that have ha- have had these experiences. Yeah. Now, what about <clears throat> excuse me? What about him transitioning out? Now, that's something I see that you know a lot of our men and women struggle with is we identify as that responder for so long, and some people have a flawless transition. They have another project that they immediately step into, and some people don't. How how was he as far as retirement? Did he did he deal with that well? I think he dealt with it really well. Um, I mean, he put thirty eight years in, so I mean he. He gave a lot to the department and he, he worked a lot, you know, that's, it was my whole childhood was him, you know, working constantly. So when I think he, you know, he obviously missed it hanging out with the guys and, and, and being a part of that brotherhood. But I mean, him, him transitioning out, I mean, he, you know, he went traveling, you know, camping, he did, he did really well in that transition, um, and I think, you know, that I live close by to him, you know, 10 minute drive. So we're, me and him always have those conversations about like, you know, what I'm, I'm experienced. So I think he's, for the most part, he's doing really good, really good with the transition. Beautiful. Well, I think traveling is an amazing thing. If you're going to have that time off, then yeah, you know, don't, don't sit in an apartment, you know, go see the world. Yeah. Yeah. Then he's a big traveler, always has been. So it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's bad now because of COVID, you know, he's had to put that on hold. But before, you know, he could have big fishermen go on fishing trips. That, that was his thing. Love it. All right. Well, then, as you were getting kind of the high school age, were you hell-bent on becoming a firefighter yourself? Yes. Yes. I was, you know, right out of high school, I wanted to – I went to community college um, and took those fire uh, fire tech classes down in Santa Ana. And um, it was always – it was always a dream. You know, I would do uh, ride along station visits. I would just um, fresh out of high school, taking those uh, those fire tech classes. I loved it. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, physically, did your dad help you prepare for the demands of the academy and then ultimately probation? Yeah, he. I mean, he. Um, you know, growing up playing soccer, I was pretty. I was pretty fit endurance wise, uh, not so much strength wise. But you know, when I, when I was getting closer, and it was. You know, when I got picked up and I was going to start the academy, my dad told me, he said, this is the hardest thing you're going to do. Um, nothing physically can com- and mentally can p- compare to what the drill tower is going to put you through. Um, so when he said that, I knew I knew he was serious. Um, I took that at heart. I joined CrossFit. I worked out intensively, you know, stairs, you know, weight training. I did all this stuff. So he uh, he was mentally preparing me like, hey, you got to like get in shape and eat right take care of your body, drink lots of water and things like that. Brilliant. Well, it's interesting. I'm actually interviewing Dave Castro this afternoon, the head of CrossFit or was the head of CrossFit. Oh, 
Um, so, you know, I want to explore this very conversation because we don't really hear the CrossFit people talking about the tactical community. So tell me about, you know, that journey. You'd been a high level soccer player. Was, was the first, uh, workout humbling as it was with me? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I mean, I got my butt kicked in CrossFit. <laughs> I, I worked out yesterday and I, and I, I'm, I was going to go in this morning, but I was like, you know what? I am sore. I am beat up. But um, I love that. I love that competitive side. I love the movements. I love the change in rhythm. Um, I just love challenging myself, and it's such a close community here in CrossFit. And I don't know. I just I, I what I had in soccer, like that those those workouts and those, that teamwork, I get in CrossFit. So I mean, I love it. I I love. It. I do it as much as I can. Now, one one thing I've talked about before that I find that that type of high intensity training really does, and the same with if you do like you know strongman medley type stuff too, is it's it's a great place to to put yourself in a dark place. And I'm not talking about all the time. It's actually a very bad thing to do when you come off shift and you're already tired and stressed. But mm-hmm. um, you know, as you know, there at least once a week, let's say, you need to to kind of hit the red line a little bit so that we're constantly being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Was mm-hmm. that an element when you were preparing for it? Did that kind of um, pain cave element factor into your success in the academy? Yeah. the I mean, there's a lot of times in the CrossFit workouts, you know, that I would, I would you know, on the verge of, you know, puking because I was pushing myself. So when that came across in the tower, you know, there was, you know, I pushed through that and it, 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 I mean, I couldn't have done it without CrossFit. I mean, the type of training we did there at CrossFit, and then it was the same workouts we did at the tower. So, I mean, it was it wasn't easy, but it helped to have that you know that understanding and that okay, this is what my body's doing. I'm getting exhausted. I could push through it a little bit more, you know. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the problem. I've been in it for 14 years, and I actually found it in a fire station in Anaheim when I worked out there, um, and. Uh, Sadly, there's a lot of stigma around it. There's a lot of, you know, people that really <laughs> just, just put themselves in ridiculous positions and did hurt themselves and made the YouTube, you know, heroism, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, um, fame, should I say. But yeah. the, the reality is, I think there's a lot of value to whether it's that, whether it's a different philosophy, but, you know, that high intensity, you know, movement and then, um, you know, the strongman stuff I love as well. So it's, it's just oh, good yeah. to hear that it prepared you for what we're about to talk about because I hate that whole thing being disregarded just because of a few ding dongs <laughs> doing it wrong and, <laughs> you know, being insta famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all about, I mean, for me, it was all about staying in my boundaries. You know, I was, I wasn't in, I'm not the guy that can knock out 20 pull ups, you know, um, you know, I'll do my, you know, sets of five, whatever, take a break. So it's all about staying in your boundaries and knowing, you know, where you come from. And I mean, I'm still doing, you know, I can't do plus one still, you know, I'm still like either minus two or minus one, but that's my comfort zone, you know, and that's where I can excel at. Absolutely. Love it. Well, then where did you go to actual fire Academy? Uh, oh shoot. That was back in, uh, 2000. I was actually 2018, I believe. Um, I was in San Pedro, Drill Tower 40, right by the harbor. Um, I think it was 2018, yeah. It, was, it, was, it seems so long. It's, a, it's such a different life in the Drill Tower, but it, it seems so long ago. But I think that was 2018. Okay, so were you hired as an insert then? Yeah, yeah, I got, I got hired. Um, let's see, I was 26. Yeah, I got hired. Um, I just had the fire tech classes under my belt, um, EMT. Um, never worked as a firefighter before, so I was... I was, you know, brand new, no, knew, knew nothing. 
Beautiful. Well, then walk me through that from having no fire training other than obviously being exposed to to what your dad did. You know, what was that experience like for you? And then and then also how how high was the bar held by that particular cadre? Uh, I mean that it it was it was very humbling to to walk in there with no experience at all because I was just blown away. Um, I did know a little bit inside because of my dad in terms of what the what the expectations were and you know, how hard do I have to work for it? But I mean, that cadre at drill tower 40, um, they, you know, they saw a lot in me and a lot in a lot of us, they saw a lot of us that, you know, even at the time, you know, I was like, man, this is tough. I'm not doing good. But what they did for us to prepare for the field, I mean, that, I mean, that it saved my life, the drill tower, you know, getting me it, it, it snapped me out of, you know, that immature, you know, uh, I was, an, you know, I was a young father. I was that trans that drill tower taught me a lot of, you know, discipline, time management, um, communication skills, teamwork, you know, fitness. It taught me so much that once I got my feet in the field, it was like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this. I can, uh, I have some confidence out there, but their expectation, their bar was high. And if you did that, meet that, you sadly got cut. So it was, it was competitive. It was intense, but we all, as a drill tower group, we all pushed each other and, you know, it was probably the best memory I have growing up was that drill tower. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very important thing, you know, to, to make sure that we do visit because I, I work for Forney and I ended up traveling from the East coast to the West coast and then back to the East coast. And so my first two, which is Hialeah and Anaheim, they both had incredibly high bars. And just like you said, the attrition rate, especially in Anaheim, was 25%. So, you know, you really on your toes for an entire year from the first day of uh, academy. And these were certified firefighters as well. Um, And they, those two departments definitely set me up for success. The second two, it was they were the opposite. the The third one was it was okay, but it really didn't put us through a lot. And the last one was a complete joke. And that was a very powerful statement that you made because of that training that saved your life. And if I look at my four departments, had my last one been the academy that I had in your situation, I would have died. Had the first yeah. one been the academy which I had, which it was, you know, that would have set me up probably the most the best for success. So I think that's a really powerful, you know, just uh point that you made is when we set the bar high in an academy, when we set the bar high in PT, in stress inoculation, in hose drills and ladder throws, the whole point is to make sure that someone doesn't die, one of us or one of the people that we're serving. So when these departments start bringing these standards down and down and down and down, what ends up happening is in a parallel universe – Nathan Espinosa doesn't make it out of that building. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'll tell you a, a funny story. When we were, it was beginning of the drill tower and we were getting tested for our PPs, you know, suit up in 60 seconds, all that stuff. And, you know, I, I was, I was confident I could do it. So it, it came to suiting up on air and, um, you know, we're, you're in front of two captains and they're greeting you. And I suited up under 60 seconds, but my helmet wasn't on tight. And uh, his name is Judd Ream, Captain Ream. He came up to me and he lifted my helmet up and I, I auto failed. And I was pissed. You know, I thought, man, I, I, 
why didn't they let that slide? It was on, it wasn't on maybe a hundred percent, but it was there. And I didn't get it at that time. Well, fast forward to my incident, you know, I remembered before I, when I was suiting up, I cinched that helmet extra tight. So it's just funny how at the time the drill tower, you're just, you don't understand the big picture, but that was the bar that was set. You know, there was no cutting corners. There was no imperfections. It was, you have to be a hundred percent perfect at your craft. So that's what, that's a little insight of how the bar was set at that drill tower. Yeah. Well, and I, one of the things that I've always, it's just driven me crazy is filling bottles too. So, you know, I would go be in a station and, you know, the, the professionals I work with would fill them to 45, 46, 47, you know, because they cool a little bit. That's, you know, that's amount, the amount of air that you can fit in there safely that will give you the highest chance of success of a rescue or, you know, self-extrication. And it used to drive me crazy that you get the, you know, the, basically the lazy ones who, you know, it would be at like, you do shift change and it was at 38. And I mm-hmm. couldn't get my head around the fact that they had no comprehension that that pack on your back, that's all the air on the entire planet Earth that you can actually yes. breathe. So why you wouldn't take an extra 60 seconds to top off your bottle properly, but that's just it. I think the ones, those of us who are fortunate enough to be taught by great men and women understood that when we came out of the academy. Those who clearly hadn't been taught that or obviously had the ownership to seek it out themselves, that complacency of being allowed to to breed like a cancer, and that's the difference between yes. someone surviving and someone dying. Yeah, it's all about complacency. I mean, that's that's I've noticed that now at the station I'm at. I'm in Hollywood, and you know, I just had a. We were on the truck, and we were doing our daily checks. And the AO, um, you know, he walked over, and he showed me, hey, like all we need is was a little top off on the chainsaw. And um, to me, I was like, oh no, that's good. But he walked to me, he's like, hey, no, you'll thank me later when you don't have to pull your axe out on a roof and start cutting. You need that little bit of fuel to finish your cut, that's what we're going to put into it. So I was like, it just carries over into the field now where I'm seeing how you know high and tight these guys are. And yeah, there's some knuckleheads up there, but for the most part, especially where I'm at my station, I mean, these they're, they're on top of things, you know? So it's just, it's such a good learning environment um, to be a part of, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know the incident happened pretty early into probation. So prior to that, though, when you graduated from the academy, in those first few weeks, how did you observe that that bar was held high once you'd stepped out of the academy and into the crews that you started working with? It was, it was, it was interesting. I was at a, um, I mean, you can say a generally older station. I was in twos at Boyle's Heights, and we, um, there was definitely a, a bar there, and, um, you know, being the fact that my my dad was right down the street at 16s, um, you know, we would run calls into each other. It was. I mean, my, you know, we have our name, our names on our, our, on our t-shirts and, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're Espinosa's boy, you know, Frank's boy. So the bar was set high and, you know, I, I, I rose to the challenge and meet it. You know, you give your rookie drills and, you know, being on time early, it starts with, it starts as soon as the gate opens, you walk in early, you know, do all the rookie routines, get your stuff on the gear, give the drill and you just carry on to the day. So it was. It was a normal rookie house. It wasn't too intense, but there was definitely a hard bar that needed to be met. Right. Well, I know that you, you in the video you talk about September 19th being your first 
fire. Had you had anything smaller, or was that genuinely the very first structure fire you went on as a proby? No, we had we had a couple. Um, you know, we had some vacants. Um, I think I had about four uh, structure fires when I was at two. So I was there for three months before the incident. Um, you know, we had a huge semi truck uh, fire in a parking lot. We had auto fires. Um, I think three vacants, and then one. You know, one where we were on the roof and we actually cut up on. So that I had a little bit of exposure. Um, you know, and it was good. There were some other major emergencies that I was exposed to. You know, setting up ladder pipe or, you know, things like that. But this large commercial, um, I technically labeled that as my first real fire because it was like we were the first truck on scene. So it was, it was us running the show. You could say. Gotcha. Yeah, and there's a, there's a different, completely different breed in a commercial fire too. At least from from uh, you know my career, because Anaheim had a lot of, you know, either side of a thousand square foot wooden homes in Florida. Here mm-hmm. it was the same thing. So you know, it's it's still you know you have to focus, but it's not as daunting as you know a hundred thousand square foot warehouse. You know, with a panelized roof, and you're hoping you're not going to fall oh, through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, then, so let's let's walk through that day. Um, walk me through from the beginning, like you know, the beginning of the shift on September nineteenth, two thousand eighteen, and then kind of walk me through the events. Um. So I don't I don't remember too much of the morning. Um. I remember walking in, making relief with the with one of the other rookies, and you know, I had a map drill that day, so I was giving my map drill. You know, in between calls, you know, getting interrupted, and we had, you know, the day was going, you know, normal, you can say. And, you know, finished my drill, you know, I thought I did pretty good. And then it was time for lunch. Um, so I remember the AO turning around and asking me, hey, SB, where do you want to eat for lunch? You know, I had no idea. I was like, oh, what are, you know, whatever you guys want. And so we picked up, it was right down the street from our station, this little um, Asian noodle place. And, you know, finished lunch. And then... You know, texting the wife here and there. Then all of a sudden, we get a pulse point. We have that app, and we were turning back from another call. And you know, we saw it was a structure fire. So I'm in the back of the truck, and um, you know, we just got off the five freeway, and then AO the AO made a left hand turn and said, "Hey, we're going to that structure fire." So I I started suiting back up in the rig, and um, that was the events leading prior to that to that incident. Right. So then when you actually get on scene, what are you seeing initially? Um, so when we got up, when we, you know, we're still driving up. I didn't see a lumen up. Um, you know, I was still having, uh, I was still suiting up. And as soon as we got on scene, I mean, it was just this huge, huge building on fire. And before I get out of the rig, you know, I reached for my phone. And I didn't know why, but I was about to text my wife. Her name's Alexa, and I was about to text her, just saying I love you. Um, but I, as soon as I grabbed my phone, I put it down, and I didn't know what, I didn't know why, but that was what I did. So I put my phone down, I got out of the rig, and you know I'm ready to th- I'm ready to throw a ladder, and um, I'm just sitting there, and pretty much taking it all in, um, doing my size up, looking at the structure. Heavy, heavy, heavy smoke coming out of it. And, um, you know, I'm checking. I got all my gear and ready to go. So I look to my tillerman, 
you know, I said, Hey, let's go, let's go throw a 35. Um, you know, and then he looks at me and he's like, Hey, let's just wait for the AO to, to throw the aerial. So we're on standby. We're waiting, we're waiting. And next thing you know, the AO is like, Hey, we let's go. We're going to the roof. So it's like, okay, shoot. Now the, the Tillerman and myself are playing catch up because we didn't throw our 35. So we loaded the pedestal, you know, we, we climb up the aerial ladder and as soon as soon as you go get up there, we run the exposure. I mean, my whole vision was just a huge smoke cloud, no heat, just complete smoke. I mean, I, I couldn't see anything behind that, that smoke cloud. So the, it's the AO, the Tillerman, myself and the inside members, four of us that go up there. And, you know, we break the roof kit, we're sounding, we go out there. The AO and the inside member, um, they walk. You know, they're walking maybe 8, 10 feet in front of us. The Tillerman and myself were walking up just behind them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a first house I'm a first house rookie. You know, I'm pretty amped up, pretty nervous. Um, the whole time, the whole time that's going through my head is that, man, this is a, this is a well-involved building. You know, what exactly are we doing? What exactly is the game plan? How are we attacking this thing? And that smoke, seeing that smoke, it was a big red flag for me. But I, I'm telling you, I didn't know how to address that. I didn't know how to label that. I didn't know if this was normal. And that was kind of, that's kind of the point I want to make is that, is that, that red flag going off, I didn't say anything, you know? So that was mistake number one on my part. We're going up there, the AO and the inside member, you know, they're not, they're not now ready to hop over the parapet onto that building. And Tillerman looks at me and he says, hey, suit up. So I suit up. I finish suiting up. I click in. I'm on air. I'm ready to go. And I, I go over to meet the AO and I see him gesture the the inside member to go you know go sound out so he hops over he has one of the sounding tools he's sounding out about 10 feet and i'm next in line i have the next sounding tool so i sound hop over the parapet and i was i turned because i'm ready to go follow the the inside member and all of a sudden he just starts it's almost like a fast fast paced walk he starts walking back and didn't see his face or anything, but as soon as he was like within arm's reach of me, I mean, as soon as he was about to pretty much touch me, the roof caved in and it was, it's hard to ex explain that feeling of standing on something firm and then it just being swept out from underneath your feet. And it's ex extremely hard to to tell this story because it was completely black in there. When I tell the story, it's 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 a big black cloud with a little bit of red glow to it. You know, I hit the ground. I hit. I didn't know if I fell a little hole or fell with the roof. I had no idea what was going on. The whole time I fell in, I was. I mean, I was scared shitless. And it hit me hard that this is it, you know, this is, this is where I'm going to die. First house rookie, um, 
you know, my wife's going to get a phone call. My dad's going to get a phone call and I'm going to be your first house rookie and die in this commercial building. So I fell in and I'm, I'm immediately screaming mayday, 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 just over and over again, screaming at the top of my lungs. And then it, it kind of dawned on me that, God, I'm an idiot. No one can hear me. I'm not hitting my push to talk. No one can hear a thing that I'm saying. So I hit my EAB button, my melee button, and that's what kind of got the ball rolling. As soon as I hit that button, and I'm getting a little choked up because I haven't talked this story in a while. Um, as soon as I hit the button, my, um, you know, my, my family popped in my head. Not a life flash before your moment thing, but a, you know, like a still frame picture. You know, first was my daughter. I still can picture picture that. I I still can see that picture. You know, she's not smiling, but she's almost is. You know. You know, then my then then comes my son's face. You know, he's just looking at me, and then my wife's face. And then as these pictures are popping in my head. A voice comes over me, you know, what my drill, my drill master would, would tell us, you know, every day was go down swinging. If ever you're in a fight for your life, you go down swinging. You never give up. You don't have a right to give up and die. And I'll be honest, I did have that thought of this is it. You know, I, I can crawl in a corner, put my back to the fire and wait it out, and I will probably die. And I thought about, you know, what would it look like to find my body curled up you know, on the side of a wall. And that, that thought of giving up, I mean, that has been a, a huge struggle to this day is that, you know, being a father of two and a husband, I did, I wasn't ready to give up. And I can't tell you how I got out there, how I got out of that situation. I was, the way I tell it, it is I was directed by the heat my body, if I went one direction, it got too hot. I immediately was crawling toward another direction, you know? And, and what I end up doing is I took, I took my left hand and I put it in my, my face, my face pouch and I was shielding it. And my right hand, that was the one that got damaged the most was the only one crawling. You know, I hit my head on, on a wall. I had no, I had no idea what was left and right. I had, couldn't tell you anything about that, where I was. I wasn't, caught on anything wasn't entangled in a mess i was it was just a vertical ramp till eventually when i saw the blue sky you know i saw the power lines and i, and I remember thinking like that is really close why is it so close and then all of a sudden i it i grabbed the parapet and i can look over you know, and that's another trigger point was when I saw those firemen down by the, by the aerial ladder, it messed me up, you know, because I didn't understand why their backs were towards me. And this was the biggest jump in my life. It was about a six foot jump and I had all my gear on and I was afraid if I jumped too hard, I was going to fall in or if I misstep or didn't have the strength, you know, that I was going to die. This is my one shot. And as soon as I jumped swung my body over, swung my legs over. That's when I had that sign of relief was like, I just made it out. I'm alive. And before you know it, I'm climbing down the aerial ladder. The guys are start taking off all my gear. 
and they pulled my glove off and that's when all the skin comes with it. And I load, they loaded me up in the hospital and I was on my way. Well, thank you for, you know, reliving that. I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, incredibly hard, but I mean, it's, there's so many lessons from this. And I think the f- first one is, correct me if I'm wrong, the reason your hand was burnt is because you had to take the glove off to hit the emergency button. Is that right? Yes. I, um, I couldn't, when I fell in, the, my right hand glove became a little bit, um, you know, dislodged. So I couldn't, my left hand, I don't know what it was. I couldn't, I couldn't find it. It was, I don't know if it was caught on my ax or, or, or I was, it was stuck or whatever, but I was trying to find it with my right hand and I couldn't. So I ended up just, <clears throat> I ended up just grabbing it with my, my, with my left hand and taking the glove off. And then I hit my AIB and I'm sorry. I took it off with my left hand. I took my left hand glove off and hit my AB, and that's the one I stuck in my face pouch. And I, you know, I got some second and third degree burns, but the reason why my right hand got so damaged was just because it was the only one that was out there. You know, feeling things ahead and and you know putting my hand in the fireball and you know hitting the wall. It was the only thing that was working. You know. Right. And then, and then, so for, for people listening, how you actually got out was that roof was a partial collapse. So it was basically a lean to. And so you were actually navigating at a 45 degrees up towards the top of the roof again. That's how you found yourself in daylight. Yes. It was like, <clears throat> it was a perfect ramp. It was a partial collapse. And what ended up happening was the, the two or three trust members that we were exactly standing over, that was what, failed and it made it when they when they collapsed it made that perfect ramp and it's still the one trust member that was to the alpha side was still connected so that was the only way you could have gone out was through that was through that way you know and i'm telling you just just by the heat alone dictating and the will to survive that was the that was the only path out was to follow that ramp out and then make that jump. Amazing. Now, just you know, staying on your self-rescue before we get to your crew, another thing that obviously stands out is the fact that because of the the level that you were trained in the academy, because of the physical conditioning that they put you through, that you put yourself through, those all came together to give you that calm mind and the physical ability to actually make that climb and, and the jump to safety. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was... You know, I, I've, I've said it before that it was, it was number one, my family that got me out that day. Number two was the department. It was the training that I received at the drill tower because I, I took, I really, you know, was paying attention, especially when we had the firefighter ground survival training program, you know, and you go through the obstacle course, you're, you're going through all the lights and the sounds and you're talking about rescue breathing and, and, you know, Rick and all these different components and fighting for your life. I mean, I was, I took that to heart, you know, and that we had, we had near misses come in and, and do presentations. And that was good. That was close to the end of our drill tower. And that's when it all just starts sinking in, you know? So number one, being my family, those images, you know, and, and then, and then to the department, you know, I, those two things, you know, and, and the will to survive, survive. I mean, it was, it was the reason why I'm here today. 
Yeah, it's incredible. And, and that's, that's another the bar that's come down. Um, you know, in some places, obviously some have done incredibly well and kept it slammed high, but is the realism in training, you know, the, the ability to do, you know, um, control burns in actual buildings and, and these kind of things. And, and, you know, like you said, the, putting yourself through a maze where there's also noise and, and light and people shouting and just adding that other element, physical training, like my Hialeah, my first one, we do this crazy PT and then they'd send us through the collapse maze. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's horrendous as you know, it's, it sucks and, and not everyone gets through, but just like special forces, you know, you create those horrendous environments. So when we're actually out in the field and God forbid something happens, you have set those men and women up for success, you know, or at least as many tools as they can have. But if we keep bringing that bar lower and lower and lower, God forbid some, you know, catastrophic incident happens, those people don't have the tools to self-rescue or their crews to rescue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it it was, you know, in the tower, it was be it would be, you know, hey, if we mess up, you know, if we didn't have, you know, one thing in particular, you know, we all our lockers had to be the same. You know, all our lockers had to be on zero, dialed down to zero. You know, boots shine, everything like that, completely shaven by 0600. And if you made a, if if one of us made a mistake, we would all pay for it. You know, someone got a below 70%. You know, we had to be above an 80. You know, 70% is still passing, but you had to be above 80. If you got below 80, we su- we would suffer, you know, and it was – you know, you grab a kettlebell, you grab a seventy-pound kettlebell, and take it to the seventh floor. If you if you hear if you hear the sound of it being dropped, then your your teammates, your friends down there are getting punished. You know, and it was that that challenge and that brotherhood of hey, we can't we can't fail as a group. We have to keep pushing each other. It was it was something I'll never forget. Yeah, and I think the an enemy of that is some of these traditions that we have being labeled as hazing that's not hazing that's as you said forging you know community forging you know that team camaraderie and i i i found myself standing at the top of my draw tower shouting i'm james gearing i'm an idiot because i did whatever <laughs> you know yeah. and was it was a humiliating yeah but i mean did it make me a better firefighter absolutely you know i, I wrote about one incident in hialeah where god i mean they used to beat the shit out of us and it was in the middle of the miami summer you know all in gear <laughs> and we loaded the entire hose bed and and it was you know i remember it being dark in summer and the instructor pulled out a gasket and said do you miss something and we're like ah oh, fuck <laughs> and we had to do tear, tear the entire engine down again find the gasket that we missed and then put it back that's not hazing that's setting the no. bar high and holding us accountable exactly exactly we we uh, another thing that i we had um so we had we didn't zero out our lockers one day so they they dumped out all the our, all our clothing you know to the guys that didn't zero out their lockers we dumped out all their clothing and the staff what they did is they put it all in a trash bag and then the entire day that was our punishment was not only for those guys but for us as a class we could not let those bags of clothes drop so we'd be on the drill yard and we would hand it off the bags and we would just have them above our head the whole day and that was our, one of job was just a simple punishment of not zeroing out your lockers you know and your arms get too tired you hand it off to the next guy you know it was just we're practicing ladders that day. So at least one of our recruits out there is holding a big bag of clothes over their head. I mean, it was just, it's hilarious to see, but 
it taught us the importance of like, you know, paying attention to detail and self-discipline and all that, you know? Exactly. Well, I've had a lot of men and women from special operations on the show. And I don't think a lot of people in our professions for, you know, police fire understand that those, those professions, the special operators hold us to the same level as them through their eyes. I mean, firstly, we're protecting their families when they're deployed. But secondly, mm-hmm. we're asked to do domestically what they do internationally, which is the drop of the hat, mitigate some horrendous situation. Obviously, we're more on the rescue side in the fire and, and PD is more of the, you know, run towards the bullets. But, and then so f- to forge the kind of person that will be able to react that way, we have to be held to that high level. Yes. Yes. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, and it was, it was, it was, it's a good challenge because I, it, it, it helps wean out the people who are not meant for that, you know, no, 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 nothing bad about them, but it's just, it, they, it wasn't meant for them. So the group that is graduating, I mean, we're the top of the top. We're the, we're the ones that performed well. We're the ones that, you know, executed the missions. We, you know, we, we listened, we pay attention in class and you, and that's what's, that's what's cool to see is that those that make it were held to a certain standard, you know, and it carries on to the field and whether or not they keep it, you know, that's on them. But as more and more as the bars, you know, set high, I think, you know, overall the department, there'll just be a lot of good members out there, you know, that have that standard. Absolutely. Well, that's been a common denominator that I've witnessed with, you know, my career, as short as it was, only 14 years, but it was four departments. So I really got a kind of overview of the fire service and absolutely the ones that set the bar high at the front door ended up having great firefighters, you know, engineers, lieutenants, captains, and then the ones that had no bar, you know, that carried through the ranks. So, I mean, it's such a such a simple philosophy, really. And the other, the other thing that's such a facade or a fallacy is that, oh, if you make it easier, more people will apply and you'll be able to fill the seats. And, and I disagree completely. If you hold that yes. bar high, it becomes a challenge and you attract the best people. Yes, yes. I it, And it's it's complacency is contagious, you know, and it's it's all about keeping that bar high and meeting that challenge and no matter what it takes you got to meet that standard and it's i'm fortunate that my drill tower um was like that brilliant all right well then before we get to you know obviously to the hospital and beyond when we watched the film it seems like your crew did a great job um you know staying calm the radio communication was great so talk about it from from what you've been told now from the crew's perspective of getting you from that moment to the back of the rescue so it wasn't during the incident. Um, I couldn't hear everything over the radio. It was, it was ex- extremely loud um, once I fell in. But you know, after watching, when I was at the hospital, I, I was I got to hear the dialogue, the radio communication, and um, I thought my my AO did a fantastic job of of mitigating the situation, being aware of that I actually fell in. He gave a approximate distance, you know, fifty feet fifty feet from the alpha side. And um, he started to put things in motion. You know, if, if I didn't hit my, my mayday button, he was giving me the mayday on the TAC channel. And he was letting company, companies know that we, we got a guy in there. Um, he did accountability report. He knew that, you know, there's four of us up, up there. One was gone. And he knew a, a rough estimate of where I was. And, you know, he, 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 was, he was starting to put things in motion. And... Um, 
you know, he was up there standing, you know, standing up there and come to find out that, you know, after I was hanging on that parapet and I had swung my leg over, he was the guy that, you know, grabbed me. I mean, he's a big dude. He's a big dude. And he grabbed me and, and slammed me down onto the ground. And as soon as he slammed me down, I mean, my body was just instantly in pain. And uh, I was like, man, who's this? Who, who is this guy that just like slammed me down on the ground? And, you know, that's when, you know, I, I, I feel hands, I feel his hands on me and he starts, you know, taking off my stuff. He starts taking off my bottle, my axe, and he starts dragging me. I mean, he, we get about halfway and then, and, um, you know, I could just see his face, you know, f- full of sweat, you know, eyes wide open. And, um, you know, until he tells me afterwards, you know, once I heard you screaming, it was the best sound, you know, because you knew I was alive. And, um, yeah, he just, I have a, lo- a lot of appreciation for his, his, his ability to be calm and mitigate the situation and, and to not panic, you know, he did, he did a fantastic job. Now, how did they extricate you from the roof down? Did, did with the Stokes basket down the aerial or what was the, the method? The method? Well, they, once they drug me about halfway, um, you know, they had some guys climb up the aerial ladder and I was able to walk. So I, I just, I just walked to the aerial, um, and I, I just got on the thing. I was just, I just was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to get off the roof. So <laughs> the last I, ride I, anymore. I, I mean, I didn't even, I don't even think I asked permission. I just climbed up the aerial and I just started walking down. So I met a firefighter. He was about, he was already at the top of the aerial. So he was kind of guiding me down and I was kind of, I was using my left hand to go down and my right hand was, I was kind of, you know, just kind of, it was kind of sitting on my lap and I just, I was just sliding down. And it felt like it took forever just because of the, the pain that was setting in. You know, my whole body was hurting. It felt like I got hit by a train. And, you know, I thought I broke my hand. I didn't know. I didn't think I burned it. It just felt like it was completely shattered. And um, I remember thinking, like, man, I'm about to pass out. And I'm on this aerial, you know, 50 feet up in the air. And I'm about to pass out. And I'm going to fall off the aerial, you know. And I just was trying to stay conscious of, like, a being in the center of the aerial and not falling off. And that's when, uh, I climbed down the aerial and there's just tons of firefighters down there <clears throat> and, um, got off the pedestal and they just, they just started suiting me and taking all my gear off. And, you know, me- medics are right there. They're standing by, they take all my stuff off and they throw me on the gurney and then I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of there. So then walk me through, obviously, there, there are two layers to this. I mean, people think, you know, with burns, there's, there's the physical healing, but obviously there's the mental impact, you know, the, the actual trauma of the event itself. But then every single person who's been burned on here, the, the physical journey has a horrendous, you know, painful, traumatic element to, you know, debrading and all that stuff. So, you know, kind of walk me through the, the journey from that moment to, you know, your, your recovery. The, um, once I got into the ambulance, it was, you know, the, you know, they started giving you the pain meds and morphine and all that stuff. And it was, it wasn't taking any of the edge off, you know, and you get to the hospital and I mean, my hand was, was both my hands were ballooning up, blistering, um, just constantly, the nerves were just, con- or they were, they were damaged. They were, you know, I had third degree burns that 
you know, my pinky, my right hand pinky was burned almost to the bone. I mean, I was, I was, I was in pain and that was one of the scary parts is when you're at the hospital, I was at the County hospital and then when they give you all those intense, heavy pain meds, I mean, I thought I was dying. You know, you, you have that out of body experience, you know, you see it in the movies of your, your body being drawn from your body. I mean, I had that. It was, they give you some really intense stuff. And it took the edge off, but I was like, I am tripping out here. This is, this is way too intense, you know, and I had no idea what was going on. You're in and out of consciousness and they're, you know, they're checking all your burns and you're like, oh, you have another burn on your foot. You have another burn on your calf. Your ears are burned and the list goes on and on. And, you know, that's, then they give me a nerve blocking. They put nerve blocking into my, in my hand, you know, I had a nerve blocking, so I couldn't feel a thing. And then, man, the next day I was doing, or I think, no, it was like 48 hours afterwards, I was doing my first skin graft, you know, and that was painful. You know, they did take a huge patch from your thigh and, you know, they tell you that, oh, that's going to be another burn injury too. And it was, you know, and the, in the beginning of the hospital, it was, it was, it was hard. You know, they, they take you down to the back and they give you a scrub down and they have to scrub all your burns down and, you know that sucked. And I remember I was in there for about a week at County hospital and they, and they, I'm ready to go home. And they said, okay, well, you can't go home being this, you know, dependent on the pain pills. So they kind of gave me an ultimatum. They said, Hey, if you can last 24 hours without pain meds and we'll give you a scrub down, we'll, we'll send you home. So I had all right deal. I'm doing it. So they wheel me to the back and they give me a scrub down. I'm, I'm not in any pain meds and I'm in, I'm in tears. You know, I'm in, this is probably the most pain I've been in is them just using a brush to scrub all the dead skin off. And, but I did it. I got through it, was home the next day. And then afterwards, everything, everything else was at the Grossman burn center. You know, I, I got transferred there and their care was phenomenal. You know, the staff there, the nurse there, the doctors there, the type of treatment they do. Um, so that's where I've been. It's been I've been at the Grossman Center for, for two years now in recovery. Um, I've had multiple skin grafts. Um, they took one from the thigh, one from the scalp. And they, they took a fat, a fat graft from my stomach twice. Um, I've had reconstructive surgery, um, tendon surgery, and then most recently, I had to amputate the pinky because it was. We tried two years to try to save that thing, and it it would not budge. Um, with the amount of damage it had, it succumbed to that thing. I mean, it was. We I held on to it as long as I could, and then finally, uh, about six months ago or so, um, maybe a little bit longer than that, I I told the, I told the Grossman doctor I said, hey, I need I need to return back to work, and I need to have function. So the that was the part was like, hey, you have to chop it off, and I made my peace with it, and I knew I was going to be okay. And after they chopped it off, it was uh, therapy, intense therapy, you know, learning how to use my hand again and function, and to the point where now I'm I'm good, I'm able to function with the four fingers, my right hand, I'm right hand dominant. So that was it's been a little bit of a struggle, but I can't complain. 
That's uh, that's amazing. Well, it, it, I had a friend, Dustin Hawkins, who was uh, badly burned. Um, he was actually working on uh, one of the rescue boats that were dry docked, and it was just uh, there'd been a leak. This gas had actually seeped into the the lining of the boat, so they drained the tank and everything. Anyway, he's using a screw gun. It flashed, and he got really badly burned. And it, just kind of like you with the debrading, I'll never forget. He said he'd look at the. It was like an hour of debrading, so he'd look at the clock. Um, you know, and that'd be 40 minutes in. And he said the optimistic side would be you've only got 20 minutes left. But then the other side of it would be like, then it'd only be 23 hours. So you had to do this all over again. Yes. Yes. I, I would remember, I remember just like, okay, like I got the scrub down done, but now in 24, 48 hours, like it was actually like two days later, I'd have to do it again. And it was, I would, I would dread it. You know, to get sick to my stomach, just knowing that I'm going to be completely naked on this metal table in front of all these nurses and they're just going to scrub me down, you know, and it, I, I remember trying to think, okay, like I'm going to look at my scars so I can pass out. So I don't have to remember this, but I couldn't, you know, I would just sit there and it, it, it sucked that part. That sounds horrendous. Well, well, one perspective that I haven't asked you yet, and I think it's a very important part of the story um, was your wife. So what did she relate to you about how that day was through her lens? Like, how did she find out? And, you know, how did she deal with what she saw when, when she got to the hospital? Uh, that was tough. That is extremely tough. I mean, you can have your own podcast on her. She, she's, um, she was my, she was my guardian angel during that recovery time. I remember her walking in on the hospital. Um, bless her soul. She just, as soon as she walked in the hospital, you know, and, she, you know, she's in teared eyes and I was like, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, I knew it was okay. Yeah. Um, she didn't leave my side that whole time. Um, and, you know, despite how dark it was, you know, that moment of, of my life, you know, my wife and I, we got to spend a lot of time together in that hospital talking, just talking, you know, laughing, crying, you know, that was it was like an intense week of therapy that whole week I was there at the hospital. And then we did it again at the Grossman Center. We were there for another week, you know, and, and what was interesting is I was so aware of my trauma. You know, I was, I would be, I would, I would have nightmares in the middle of the night. I would, you know, scream at the hospital and, but I was never aware of what my wife went through till we got home, you know, till I was discharged. And, you know, she she shared her story of getting that phone call. You know, she's in the middle of a car wash. Two kids in the back. She she gets a phone call from the apartment saying, "Hey, your husband's had an accident. You need to we need to get you to the hospital." Don't they don't they don't tell her what happened? And all of a sudden, you know, she's she has two kids in the back. She's in the middle of a car wash. She can't get out, and she's got to stay calm and relaxed because my daughter hears it. And you know, she was you know six at the time and she's like hey what happened what happened to dad you know so she has to get out of the car wash she then has to talk to both the kids saying hey your dad's fine i'm gonna go to the hospital i'm gonna drop you off at nana pop's house and then two cams who live down in orange county they picked her up you know and, and that was another bad part she had to sit through that la traffic to get to me so she got to me you know like three or four layers after the incident and she walked in and I just immediately knew that I was going to be okay. 
and after that, it was, you know, she, I would come home and she would do, I didn't want a nurse to do the bandage changes. So my wife would do them. You know, my wife would help me wash my body, help me bandage my scars. She would drive me to and from appointments. Um, she was there every step of the way. Um, she probably knew more about my injuries than I did. You know, she was, she took care of me and she, and she, she made the, the dealing with the PTSD a lot more manageable because I had someone, you know, I had my wife, I had my kids, but if she knew I was having a bad day, she, she would stand by, you know, if she knew I was ready to talk, she would talk to me. She just, she just knew what I needed, you know? Yeah. Well, it's such an important, you know, conversation to have as well because they really are the unsung heroes you know i mean you've got you said it was alexa is that what you said you alexa watched? yes okay yes. that's got to be uh, annoying if you ever get a amazon alexa in the house oh yes yes it is <laughs> <laughs> shut up <laughs> <laughs> um but no but it's it's so important I mean, eric stevens one of your fellow um la um firefighters who has als you know and amanda's his rock you know cheryl fields i had chris fields on who's an oklahoma firefighter and she stood by him through thick and thin with all the ptsd and you know things that he he uh encountered but yeah i mean that's that's it people don't understand that the sacrifice we make is a very you know out front obvious thing but you know, our wives, our husbands, whoever it is that we're leaving become single parents for 24 hours, 48 hours. And at the same time, are just terrified that one day the phone's going to ring and they're going to be at one of the funerals that I've witnessed so many times in my career where the last part of their, you know, partner that they see is the helmet given to them at a funeral. So the weight that these men and women, you know, carry, you know, has to be acknowledged as well. I mean, that it's, that's why, I mean, I, I, I understand how I wanted to go back to work when I was ready, but I don't understand how Alexa, my wife can be so strong and so powerful and, and have the courage to let me go back to work. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, there's some days where it's harder than others, but the fact that I can leave to go to work now and she should just say, Hey, be safe. And I know, you know, I know I'll listen and I'll say, no, don't worry. I got this. But I mean, that's just, she was my rock that, that whole time during recovery, you know, and she witnessed everything. My whole P- PTSD, the whole good days and the bad days, you know, the, the night terrors, the flashbacks, you know, the depression. I mean, she was there through it all. And it, I, I you know, one, you know, one time she, we were in the hospital and, you know, she can just tell I just had surgery. I was exhausted and the fire chief walks in. And I'm exhausted, you know, and I'm not thinking of it. My wife's like, hey, excuse me, chief. Um, he needs to get some sleep. You know, we need the room to ourselves. And I just I just like busted up laughing. I'm, like, I, I, I'm not going to have the, the courage to say that. To the chief. And, <laughs> but my wife just like stepped in, was like, nope, he just had surgery. He needs rest. You know, he's going to have lunch soon and he needs to rest. And, you know, the whole room was cleared in a matter of seconds. And it was just me and my wife. And I just I was I knocked out. I was exhausted because I had so many visitors, you know, and that was, that's just my wife, you know, she, she took care of me and she stepped in and, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. Well, that's another thing that's been a, you know, definitely a reoccurring theme is we all show up when something first happens, when some, one of us gets sick, one of us, you know, 
God forbid, passes away. And I think that we need to think about the marathon rather than the sprint, rather than us flooding the family, you know, when it's just happened and they actually need, they they need to know that we're there for them, but they need space to process what it is and, you know, not be crowded. But we also need to think, you know, six months, a year from now that we're still there because I've heard that from, you know, right. a few widows, for example, who are like, yeah, everyone was there the first couple of weeks. And then, and then that was it, yes. you know? So I think, uh, you know, understanding that maybe we can have less people at the beginning and then pace it out and, you know, literally have reminders like, Hey, make sure we check in with this family a year from now, two years from now. So they always feel like we're truly a family. Yeah. I mean, that's, in the beginning, you said you said it spot on. In the beginning, it's it's overwhelming the support you get. Um, you know, families coming in, you know, drill tower classmates. But then, as soon as you get home from the hospital, you know, you're not at the hospital anymore, and you're home. You know, the phone calls stop, the texts stop, and eventually, it's just it's whoever's at home with you. And it would be my wife and I. So eventually, and it's a sad reality, the phone calls do stop. You know, and your classmates do stop checking in and your family starts checking in and now it's more business related. You know, the doctors are calling you, Hey, your surgery's on this date, you know, and it, it's a sad reality, but it's the truth. It's, it's gonna, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen, but eventually it's just, it's whoever's next to you, you know, and that was my wife. She was there. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about her observing, you know, the, the night terrors and the PTSD. So walk me through your mental journey because where, there you are, you finally achieve this, you know, dream career, you know, in your father's eyes, you're proud of yourself because you know, he's proud of you. You know, you, you're three months in, all of a sudden this happens. And now again, the, the identity piece, you know, you were a firefighter wearing the gear, walking the walk, and now you're in a hospital bed, you know, your hands are burnt. Um, so mentally, I mean, I know even just with, with something as mild as a, a back injury that, that crippled me mentally for a bit. So what was that journey like? And then kind of walk me through the healing process to the point where you felt mentally able to go back on a rig. It was, um, it, I, it took me two years to get back to work. It was, you know, I had, it was kind of a, gr- a grace cause it was, I was dealing with the physical side still. So. I was kind of leading on that heavily. You know, I'm not physically physically ready to return to work, but I never really, I never really can contemplate mentally being ready for work. I did. I, it wasn't even a thought process. Um, in the beginning, you know, I, I, I didn't seek help dealing with the night terrors and the, and the flashbacks and all that stuff. I, you know, it was just, I was just alone. I was angry all the time. You know, you, you start depending on alcohol you know, start to pay on the pain meds and, and, you know, I had, I had, I had good friends out there, you know, one guy in the department I had, he's at 35s with me and, and he would check up, check up on me regularly, you know, and he, and stop by just randomly, you know, call me, pick me up for lunch. And, you know, one day we're, t- you know, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at special duty and he comes over and he's like, Hey, I have this number, a therapist that, you know, might work out for you. Why don't you give her a call sometime? So this is, this is a year and a half later. And I finally mustered up the courage to, to call this therapist. And, you know, I finally started seeking help and I still see my therapist once a week. And, 
it's still an ongoing battle, battle and there's there's good weeks and there's bad weeks. It's up and down. But once I finally started talking about it, and I'm, what blew me away the most was after the incident, after I've seen that video a thousand times, I finally sat down and watched the video from a different perspective. You know, of, I'm not the victim. And when I... And when I, 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 not a lot of people know this, but when I talk about the video and you see the graffiti on the building in the, in the, in the, in the, in the front. And I mean, you could look at it up later when you see my initials, Nathan Espinosa graffiti on it. When you see my wife's initials, Alexa Del Cruz, when you see my son's initials, Zeke Espinosa and you see the part where on graffiti where it says kids raising hell. And the reason why that means a lot to me because it's, my daughter was the first image that popped in my head. Once I saw that, you know, this is a year and a half later after this. And once I saw that on the video, it just immediately hit me that this was all meant to happen for a reason. I'm still trying to figure out what that reason is, you know, to share my story and to help others. But this incident, the reason why I was assigned on that, that shift the time I got picked up, the fact that my dad was right down the street, you know, the fact that I was a young father, you know, newlyweds and all that stuff. It, it was all meant to be this incident, you know, and it was, it had to be me. It had to be me to, to fall through that roof. It had to be, it, you know, my initials are right there on that building. I mean, I, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. So once that, once that I realized that, that this is all meant to be. This is part of my journey. This is part of my path. Then I just dove into it, you know, you know, okay, I'm going to talk about, talk about it more, you know, and it just, I, it's, it's extremely hard to explain that, that graffiti being there, you know? No, it's, it's so powerful though. And I think that's where I see a lot of people find themselves at, you know, you can't, you can't reason why this happened oh you know oh there's i was supposed to get burned because this this and this you know the ideal thing is you never would have got burned but because you did now you know these men and women are like all right well this is where i'm at today and there's nothing i can do to turn the clock back but now with this new place that i find myself there's actually a huge amount of good and the number of times i've heard people that were hurt you know military that lost limbs or you know whatever it was that said I wouldn't go back and change it because the impact I've had now, if I had never got hurt, if I'd never been in that explosion or whatever it was, I don't know if I would have had the same impact on the world as when I did. I'm, I mean, that, that, it, you've hit that, that so spot on is that I would, I would not change that incident at all. Um, that incident, you know, I was, I was home for two years. I got to see my kids grow up during those two years, you know, take them to soccer games and, you know, it brought me closer to my wife. I've met people in the department. I've, I've, you know, I'm doing like this right now. I'm, I'm speaking on a podcast that I never thought would be possible, you know, and all because of that one day, that one incident, you know, I've, I've been to a, a burn conference, you know, and I've met, I've met firefighters all over the world that have been burned, you know, I've met burn survivors, other victims and not victim survivors, but, and, and to hear their story, I mean, the, the, these these kids, these these just incredible, incredible people. You know, it's just it, it blew me away. 
how much this has shaped my life. And I, I don't realize it till now, all the positive that has come from this day, that incident, you know? Yeah, well, that's, and there is so much power. I mean, as you said, the, the, we have burn camps here in Ocala, the, the State Fire College, you know, and just watching those children who may have felt completely out of place in a classroom full of, you know, children that hadn't been burn injured, but now they're all laughing and playing. They've got this common denominator. And it's the same, you know, Lionel Crowther or Mitch Dreyer, some of the other firefighters I've had that were burned. They go, you know, to these, these conferences in Denver and, and speak. Um, you know, to, to burn injured civilians, to firefighters, to military. And by us hearing these stories, not only does it prepare us on the fire operation side, does it prepare us if we're ever burned, but also I think the rest of us that maybe might never happen to, it's a wake up call to, to remind us that we wear that badge for a reason and, and we have a responsibility to hold the bar high. And with mm-hmm. all these men and women that were courageous enough to tell their stories, there are lessons. And you can either learn from it or you can take that badge off your chest and go, you know, find another job that, that you're actually good at. Because if we can't learn from stories like yours and all these other ones that have come on here, then, you know, we're, we're in the wrong profession. These are the near misses that we should be, we should be learning from. And that's why I think it's so important for departments to be, to be brave. And post their near misses and talk about their near misses and say, here's, you know, here's what we did. Charleston's a perfect example. They, they reinvented their fire department after they lost, you know, the nine men. But that is how we grow. And that is how one tragedy or near miss can save, you know, how many, how many lives does the Charleston incident save from the lessons learned there? So I think there's, right. there's a human side and then there's the operational side that, 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 you know, one story can save countless lives. Oh, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's all about, you know, learning that continuing to like learn your profession and continue to understand and, le- and learn the job. But it's all about, I mean, we have recently had the Boyd Street incident, you know, and that this was, this was shortly after I started therapy and I got to meet a lot of those guys that went to the Boyd Street incident, you know, that a lot of them got burned. A lot of them are still off duty, but talking to just those guys, I mean, that has helped me, I mean, more than I think they ever could understand. You know, for the longest time, I felt alone. And the fact that these guys are calling me and asking me questions or, you know, they're sharing their experience. I mean, it's such a humbling experience to go through that. And to hear them do these presentations and to hear other burn survivors. And, you know, I had a guy in, I, am a, I have a guy in Canada that I'm super close to. I, you know, I talk to him regularly. I mean, it's just such an honor and such a humbling experience to have these firefighters from around the world and other burn survivors and other near misses just to have that open communication with. And I mean, like I said, I would have never experienced this if it wasn't for that day. Well, did you find as well, because this is another theme that I hear over and over again, that's the beautiful thing about having over 400 episodes, you really start to see these kind of overlapping topics um, but a lot of people that have struggled mentally, when they came out the other side, one of the most healing things for that person, the one that had been through the trauma, was when they were able to start helping others. And that not only helped those people, but also helped the person, you know, doing the helping grow from their own trauma. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, what really ha- started helping me was when, you know, when they asked me to, um, 
speak with the, you know, they would have drill towers. We have, you know, fewer drill towers every year. So when they, they asked me, you know, my drill master, he would, he's the one that does all the fire fireground survival program. And he asked me to start speaking at the drill tower and wasn't ready, was nervous. You know, I'd never talked about the incident, you know, in a group setting like this. And I, he, um, he didn't push me, but he did, you know, he's like, you need to do this type of thing. You know, you're going to save a lot of lives by doing this. And when he said that, it's like, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to do it. And that's, that's what started to help me was when I talked about this and, you know, the recruits would come up to me and it, it just helped the healing process. You know, you know, I recently had the, the, the honor of going to the, to the Orange County Fire Department and, ta and talking to their drill tower. You know, I met with the families for the two hand crew guys, Orange County hand crew guys that got severely burned. You know, it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's such an honor and so humbling to, to offer help and to offer, you know, just to, just to be someone that can listen. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I just like I lean on people. I mean, people are, are leaning on me and calling me and texting me. It's just, it's such a humbling experience, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned the Orange County guys. How are they doing now? Because I, I, I saw when it first came out, I actually tried to connect them with Sons of the Flag, which is a burn organization. Um, but I haven't really heard much since. I haven't. Um, I met, I met with their families. Um, I can't, I can't remember how early on it was, you know, maybe a week or so after the incident or a few days. Um, but from what I've, from what I've gathered and talked to them, you know, they are severely burned. Um, they do have a long road ahead. Uh, those two guys haven't, they haven't, you know, I've given them my phone numbers and I, and I've told their families when they're ready to talk, you know, I'm, I'm here. I don't want to be, <clears throat> I get it. You know, it's, it's when they're ready. Same thing with their families. They know they have my number when they're ready. I'm ready. You know, I'm here. And, <clears throat> I text one of the, the guys' brother. He texted me, you know, just a question about, you know, what type of lotions that you should get. So I don't have an update on how they're doing physically or mentally. Um, I know that they have a great support system, you know, with a department and, you know, and beyond. So, but I, I can't give you an update on how they're doing. I, I just know that it's, they were severely burned. Right. Okay, well, I'm going to have to see if I can find out some more then because, I mean, yeah, that was a pretty terrifying incident too. All right, well, then I want to get to some closing questions, but one more one more area before we start moving that way. Um, you know, there was a point where you found yourself back in uniform in a station. So um, when you were actually on shift specifically, how was that mentally? Because, again, the, the, the guy I mentioned earlier, Dustin, you know, that, that, was, that was rough for him. He kept getting triggered back to, to his event. So what was it like for you? I mean, it, it, I couldn't ask for a better spot. My, uh, my drill master who was at 40s, um, he's one of the captain twos at, at 35s. So once I was ready to go back to the field, I mean, before I was even thought I was ready, I would do these ride-alongs. And I would just, sometimes I wouldn't even go on calls. I would just sit there with the feeling of I'm at the station. And, you know, then we started progressing towards going to calls. You know, then I would start progressing to walking on roofs. And, you know, the first roof I walked on, the guys would tell me I was, I looked like a deer in headlights. You know, I had no idea 
what I was doing. I was, I was, I was getting triggered, but the guys there would help me and they would, and I would talk about it. I mean, they would tell instantly when I was triggered and that's, that's what it is right now. And, you know, I'm still learning as I go in my first shift back. My first segment back was, was extremely rough. You know, I have triggers constantly and, you know, I would, I would have triggers just being in the back of an ambulance, you know, just being, you know, seeing a patient, you know, on the gurney night and I can relate to that, you know, go dropping them off at the hospital, the hospital smell and the guys would pick up on it instantly. And I would just tell him, like, you know, I had a trigger and the AO that's there. He, he was, he got, he got a sign there. He picked that station. And that's another reason why I picked that station was because he was there. He was the one that, you know, from day one of that incident till now, constantly checking up on me, you know, constantly has been there for me. So my first segment there, he pulls me back to the side, back to the station. And I just broke down. And here I am, I, I, here I am just with this, with this, with my AO, my friend, and I'm breaking down just because of how hard it is to be back at the station, you know, hearing the tones, being around the smells of the, of the, the, of the burnt, you know, burnt, burnt wood on guys turnouts. And I'm just telling them, I'm like, this sucks. This is so hard. I just want to go home. I want to quit. I want to, I can't do this. And he just he just listened and I got it off my chest and we came up with a game plan. You know, take it at one, twelve hours at a time. You know, I would I would look forward to lunch and then I would get the next twelve hours. And if there was ever a situation where I wasn't uncomfortable in, you know, we're going we're going on a roof and I had a bad feeling, we'd have that open communication. You know, my my what was Crazy Mutimi was my first day back. My first day back to full duty. We had a we had a we had a fire. We had a huge vacant building. I was going up like a like a like a like a bonfire. And my first shift back, and I'm on the engine, and my AO is on the truck, and I'm with my crew, and we pull up, and it's it's huge burning, and I'm like, okay, I'm getting I'm getting triggered, you know, I'm I'm seeing the the sound, I'm seeing the the flames, the smoke, the smell, everything. And my captain looks at me. He says, hey, grab a two and a half. So I'm like, okay, thank you. Someone's giving me a job to do. I can focus on that task at hand. I, I run over. And next thing you know, my AO, who's supposed to be on the truck, runs over. He's on, the, he's on the two and a half with me. And the rest of the guys there, they're doing their jobs. So the AO and myself, we're attacking that fire. We're around the outside just shooting water in. And I'm, and I'm just, hey, is this wall going to collapse? He's like, yeah, good idea. Let's, let's change positions. He knew it wasn't going to collapse, but there was a slight chance, and he listened, you know. And then after that fire, everyone gathers up around me. Espy, how you doing? Espy, that was your just your first day back. You're good luck. You just got us a fire, you know. And it was just that laughing about it, that talking about it, that helped, you know. And and to the fact that I had a, a fire my first day back, and I got that out of the way, and I had that trigger, and I dealt with it. I mean, it it, it still happens those triggers, but the fact that I'm with those those set of guys that understand that are that don't judge that are helping me through it. You know, I was giving my PP PP drill in front of the guys, and I broke down just talking about the face piece because it it took me back to that day. And after that that drill, you know, there's no judgment there. 
here I am crying in front of 14 dudes, you know, and I was embarrassed and, but they didn't make me feel that way. It, it what they got out of it, they were, they're like, man, that's, that was a good drill. Thank you. You know, and that just was part of the healing. And I, these guys aren't therapists. They're just, they're normal firefighters, but they, they're such a good group of guys that they, they know how to approach the situation. You know, they, if I'm having a good day or bad day, there's some guys who will come up to me and say, let's talk about it. Or some guys who don't come up to me, but maybe that's what I need that one day, you know, where I could just, Hey, let's go SP. Let's go train on this. Let's talk about this piece of equipment. And it snaps me back out of that trigger. So I, I couldn't ask for a better spot at this station. You know, it's, 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 it's just, it's such a diverse district. There's, we know we have hillside homes, we have commercials, you know, we go to fires, we have, you know, we're busy with medical calls, you know, it's such a good group of guys that I wouldn't have gone anywhere else in the, in the, in the department other than this station 35s. Well, mate, that's such a, a powerful, you know, story. And I think it just illustrates what's needed right now. You just had a group of men in that particular station that cared. And I think that's the answer, not only to, you know, what you went through and getting you back on the rig and, you know, hearing your engineer stepping up. I mean, that's just so powerful. But that's, like you said, we don't need to be counselors. We just need to be there for each other and be present. And the ones that are not struggling, be looking out and then the ones that are struggling be in an environment where they feel comfortable to be vulnerable to to ask for help so i mean that's such a powerful you know and god i mean i don't even know how to put it into words what you've just told us is exactly what every fire station should be like i mean i mean i it, it was to the point where i would have like like a, almost like a meeting with the with the cabins at the front office you know and every you know, they were to the point where, like, hey, SB, if you're like, what I would do is, I would be, I, you know, my big trigger was being suited up on air and having that face piece on and being in that dark environment. And I knew that was a trigger. So, you know what? The guys were like, you know what? We'll bring in, we'll bring in smoke machines and we'll put it on the handball cart. We'll put you in a dark room and we'll just sit there with you and we'll progress toward that. So, what I ended up doing was, I would be at the station and I would just, I would suit up on air and I would go on the handball court. The guys would know they would check up on me every once in a while, but I would just sit on the handball court for about an hour and just suck my face piece all the way down. And I would just sit there. And then afterwards I, I would go have a meeting in the front office with the cabin. <clears throat> hey, SB, how you doing? Do we need to change something? You know, and they would just, we would constantly reevaluate the situation. And my cabin too, who's off duty right now, but he's coming back. You know, he would call me. And we would meet up for lunch. SBR, like, what's our game plan? Like, what do we need to do to make you succeed? And the, just that constant checking in and knowing that these guys had my back and that they were going to train me the right way. You know, I told them I don't want an easy way out. You know, you know, I was still a first house rookie and I, I still have a lot to learn. I still want to give drills. I still want <clears throat> to do the right thing. And they, and they, same thing, they held that bar, you know, I'm, I'm held to the same bar as any other guy there, but there's that level of camaraderie where, Hey, I need to lean on you guys a little bit and they're there, you know? And it's just, I couldn't, I, I can't explain what that has done for me knowing that I can drive to work and I'm not nervous and I'm excited to what the day brings. I mean, I, 
I wouldn't have been there two years ago. I never would have thought I'd be here, you know, going back to work and going on roofs again and, and having that level of respect for my profession, you know, and being cautious, you know, I never thought I would have gotten here ever, but here I am, you know? Yeah. Well, and again, you're, you're there because of your own will and the incredible environment that your crew created. And it kind of totally separate from a traumatic incident. It reminds me of the last place I worked at through an environment that totally encouraged complacency. You had literally men and women that weren't forced to put their mask on very often. So they, I, I witnessed people literally have panic attacks when they went to put it on. Now there were two types of people there, people that knew that they weren't where they should be and that wanted to get back to where they were. And this is no different than the firefighter or police officers found themselves out of shape and they, you know, they want to go back. But then the other side is there are some that didn't want to address it. And I think what's really powerful about what you've told us is take that person who in your department, for whatever reason, the bar was low, you found yourself where you weren't operationally ready, physically, mentally, whatever. If you have a desire to improve and your crew, your department creates an environment to, you know, for you to succeed, we should bend over backwards to get these men and women back to where they need to be, whether it's a mental trauma, whether it's physical deconditioning. Um, the only, you know, uh, um, God, I'm stumbling my freaking words now. The only <laughs> exception to the rule, so there we go, is obviously if there isn't that desire, if you, if it's a deconditioned or, you know, person who's, who's not risen to a bar and has no desire to get there, that's obviously a whole different conversation that maybe is in the wrong profession. But it's so inspiring that your crew knew damn well, you know, that ultimately you were trying to overcome this trauma and and they, God, I mean, I, I don't think you could have done it better than what they did. If you go to a lot of these mental health places, we have one here in um, UCF in, in Orlando, and that's exactly what they do. They... They desensitize each step so that person feels comfortable with step A, step B, step C. So your crew did it so, so right, basically. So I applaud you and I applaud them. And, and it's so inspiring that you found yourself back on the rig, excited to run calls again. I mean, I mean, it's just, it, they, again, these aren't mental professionals. These are just normal firefighters. But the fact that it was, these guys know what I need and, and, and I, I can, talk about it and I can be open about it and I can have these triggers and not be ashamed. I mean, it's just, it's such a wonderful experience and to, and to have these triggers and, and uh, just to have a trigger and to sit with it, you know, be on a roof and the guys would give me a couple seconds to catch my breath and I would have that trigger. I mean, and then it's like, then we start talking tactics, you know, we'd walk, I, we, we would rock so many roofs and the first one was horrible. The second one got, was not so bad. You know, maybe the third one was horrible again, but we just kept doing it and we kept talking about it and I kept having these triggers and it's all about exposure therapy and, and sitting through those uncomfortable feelings and having those. I mean, I'd be, I'd be doing my breathing, breathing exercises in the rig and, you know, and, and we would have a fire in downtown and then one of the guys would be like, Hey, SP, breathe, relax. We're okay. We got this. And he's like, Hey, start thinking about operations, what we're going to do. Just I mean, it's just what a what a good group of guys that have that awareness, you know, and that has taught me so much that, you know, I, I'm going to be that person to someone one day, you know, 
maybe I am, but to have that awareness of what other people are going through and these guys have a lot going on in their lives too. So it's like, it has allowed me to, to help them too, you know, and to, and just to have that open communication. I mean, such a wonderful experience. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, when you're saying that, it's kind of reminding me of, you know, a lot of the stuff I did with my crew in California and, and even beyond that, where all it takes is one person that day to take the lead, you know? So let's take climbing the aerial, for example. You know, the more you do it, the less pucker factor you get, you know, 100, yeah. 110 feet in the air. So the you don't have to go through trauma to have that desensitization. I think the more that we walk roofs, climb ladders, you know, go through um, claps, props, whatever it is, that just forges resilience in all of us. So, you know, I'm sure that you probably raised your crew up by them getting together and putting you through that. And I'm sure they were better firefighters from it as, as well. Yeah, because I mean, my the first day I was there, we I did my whole near miss drill. I had the PowerPoint, I did the pictures, did the video, and they were, you know, talking about, and, you know, we were just digesting it and 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 going over that incident, and they got a lot of it out of it too. Just going over that incident and knowing that, I mean, I tell them you just you don't know what's going to happen that day. It, it's such it's a career where you have no idea what type of incident you're going to go on. But you have to, the one thing you can control is yourself, you know, your actions, what you take with you, your PPEs. You know, I, I, I stress that when I talk about it, is knowing what you can control. You know, what I could control that day was the proper PPEs and getting out alive. That's what I, that's, that was the only thing I can control, control that day. And that's what we can as firefighters, as first responders, policemen, you know, whatever is that you can control your attitude, you know, what you're. Make sure you're, you have your proper PPEs on. Those things can help you and will help you if you're in in a fight or flight and you need to get out alive. And the biggest thing is 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 if you're in that situation and you have to fight for your life, you cannot give up because I don't care what it is. If you have family, if you have kids, or if you have a dog that you care about, you have to find that something in deep down in your heart that's worth fighting for you know and, and you'll be surprised of what you have inside and how much fight you can give you know it, it's just i hope that you know a lot of people can realize that that we have a lot to give to this earth and we have a lot of you know a lot of experience to share with people and I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. That's a good segue as well. So I want to talk about go down swinging the film, and then we'll go to some closing questions. So how how did the NFFF approach you about that? They uh, they approached me uh, kind of shortly after the incident, and I this whole this whole um, therapy session, I've always had an attitude of like I'll do everything and anything I can to to recover mentally and so when the video came out you know i thought man this is gonna trigger me a lot but i'm gonna do it so they approached me with the video you know before covid and everything came and I, I'll, I'll do it you know the the director uh, robert he was like hey let's go i have an idea let's go visit the the building that you fell through and we'll do a little piece there and i said all right let's do it you know let's let's your first day back to work. Let's uh, let's film you. You know, going back to work. Well, you know, all right. Let's do it. So that they came over to my house. They they 
you know, uh, the cameraman and, and, you know, two other assistants and they, and then they just sat there and, and did the whole interview. And I broke down and cried in that interview and, you know, another healing process. And next thing you know, that they put together this wonderful documentary film and, you know, I'm sitting with my wife at the table and we get to go through with IFF and the national fire foundation. I mean, I can't, I couldn't believe the work they did and watching that film. And it, it, I mean, it, I was blown away, you know, for, cause for a while I thought, God, man, this is, it's just, it's just such a dark and, and sensitive story. And, and, you know, I have a, there's a lot of issues I have with that, a lot of mental struggles, but it was such a positive message, that video. And I, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from it. And I, I told the guys that ran it, I mean, you guys, they did such a fantastic job that. I, I've made a lot of peace with that incident because of this video and I've got, got a lot of, a lot of positive growth because of that video and they, they just did such a phenomenal job. And one day, you know, when, when the time is right, when my kids are a little bit old, older, I like to sit down and watch and watch it with them because, you know, my daughter kind of knows what happened, but my son doesn't, they just know I got hurt in the job. But I think that'll be one day cause they're going to find out about this incident, this near miss and this hard times that we've had that, this will be the this will be the the path to go is to sit down and watch that video as a family, because it's such a positive message. Absolutely, you know they did a great job. And people listening, it's called "Go Down Swinging." The National Fallen Firefighter Foundation made it, and I'll put a link to that on the webpage for this episode as well. Well, one powerful you know element that we haven't really discussed is obviously your father when you got hurt. Now he's you know uh, was active duty and. I'm sure there must have been a little element of of guilt, completely unfounded guilt. It wasn't anyone's fault at all. But how did he deal with with your injury and moving forward? Um, so he he was uh, like I said, he loves fishing. So he was he was him and his uh, best friend were they were they had just gone on a flight uh, to go on a fishing trip. So my incident happens, and he had just landed in Colorado, and he gets a phone call that he needs to come right back because I had, I had got burned. So he makes phone calls, you know, he, he's, he's starting to paint a picture of what exactly went, went down. He knows where I'm at. So he, he gets, he gets to the hospital around, um, midnight. And as soon as he, as soon as he walks in, I, I, I broke down again. I'm telling, I tell him exactly what happened. You know, I told him I, I'd, I'd fallen. I told him what happened with the guys on the roof. And I told him, I just told him everything. So he looks at me. He's like, all right, you're going to be all right. You know, so he, he walks out of the room and he's talking to my mom and talking to my wife, Alexa. And he says, he's going to be all right physically. He's going to come back. But mentally, that's going to, the, the wounds he can't see, that's going to be the struggle. So, you know, the video comes out. <clears throat> he knows about the video, but he doesn't want to watch it he was that was a big trigger point was watching the video so it wasn't until year like two years later almost that we finally me and him we finally sat down and watched the video together and he could he was speechless and we talked about it we watched it again and again and we talked about it and 
you know, even when I was on special duty, you know, I would call him, you know, I would leave, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, or whatever, and it'd be in LA traffic and I would call him and we would just vent. I would just talk, you know, Hey, I had a trigger. This is what happened. You know, my dad gets triggers too right now. And I, I still, I still call him. I still call him. I just saw him. We just, we were over there yesterday and I was just talking to him about stuff, you know, like, Hey, my grip strength went up on my right hand, you know, and we're talking about that. We're laughing. And he, he, he was, he has always been my hero growing up, knowing that he was a firefighter and, you know, putting his life on the line and knowing what he does as a living. And this incident, I just have so much appreciation for what he did. So we, we, this has definitely brought us a lot closer and I've seen a lot of the mental side on, on what he's gone through, not only because of this incident, but the just the mental aspect on first responders, on the stuff that he's carried with him. I mean, he shared me stories that some I've heard a lot because I know they weigh heavily on him and some I've never heard before. So he, he, he has the ability now that this incident has brought us closer because now we have both have had something traumatic in our career. So we have that, that bonding, you know, not only as father to son, but first responders, but also that, cause we've had something tra traumatic in our, in our career. So yeah, he, uh, we're, we're, we're extremely open about it and extremely close now. He, um, this is it. You know, same thing with my mom. Like this has just brought us so much closer. You know, we live ten minutes from from my my parents, and we're we were over there last night for dinner, and it's just brought us that much closer. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a good point to transition. Then, so um, the closing questions I have. The first one I like to ask: Is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today, or something completely different? Oh man, I'm like, I'm not a big reader. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think there was one. Oh man. You know what I, I listened to recently and I don't know what it, I don't know. It's how it's how to unf yourself. I think that's what it's called. It's like a, it was like an audio book on, I was, I was due for, I was, I had a free book i could i purchased i never purchased an audio book and it was like how to unf yourself or something like that and i listened to it and it's all about your perspective um i'll have to i'll have i'll text you the i'll look it up because i've just finished the audiobook but i'll text you what it's called but i would listen to that to and from work um it's all about what you can do for yourself and how you can look at the world and what you can control and it's all about your attitude and especially towards traumatic injuries and how to how to knowing that it's okay to to to, to be to fee, to be messed up sometimes and how to recover but that was that was one book that i i listened to a lot brilliant all right well then what about a film film and or a documentary oh man the uh you, you, i'm sure you've seen it only the brave that film i I watched that uh, after the incident, and man, that I watched it by myself, and then I um, 
I watched it with my wife and that, that, that film that, um, what those group of guys did. And oh, man, it, I get choked up just thinking about it. It was, <clears throat> I've watched that quite a few times and that I, it's, it leaves me speechless that film. Yeah, that film actually, uh, you know, resonated with me in multiple different ways. I mean, I had Brendan McDonough on the show. I had, um, Eric Marsh's widow, Amanda Marsh. I had Josh Brolin. Um, and then even that movie factored into one of my close friends who got to see it because the studio actually sent a copy to us so we could play it for him right before he passed away from, from autoimmune disease as a firefighter. So yeah, that, that, that film has been <laughs> very central in my life too. So I can relate. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't even know what to say about it, but that it just it it's such a good film and it it's helped me a ton. And um, I don't know, I I can't I can't praise that film enough. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the next question is: There a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, there there. I I think if you can get to I, I, there's like a ton, a ton. I have those two Orange County crew members that were severely burned. I think they have a an amazing story to tell, and I know their recovery is going to be long and hard, but I know they can get through it. Those two guys, any number, any one of the guys from the Boyd Street incident, you know, from the AO to the guys on the inside, you know, the engine cabin on the inside the cam too, the, the guy who, whose, whose hands are severely burnt in his recovery, you know, his, his attitude of never giving up, never giving up to my fellow firefighter in, in Canada, you know, who just promoted, I mean, there's a number, there's a, a list of guys that I know that their survival and their story would be huge to be on this podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll have to send you their, uh, their contact info please do absolutely i think it's important that we hear their stories too all right well then the very last question before we make sure people can uh reach you know, where to reach out to you what do you do to decompress uh that, that goes down to crossfit i you know I, I come home from work and i have to hit the gym right away or, or else i can't do it once i get the gym out of the way i'm come i come home and spending time with the family you know before this covid outbreak i was you know we would always go to the beach a lot always go camping it's all about nature and the family so you know as long as i get the gym in early you know before my kids wake up i come home hanging out with the kids and then spend that quality time with my wife you know have the family dinner always a home cooked meal at home we're watching you know some sort of disney program you know or you know we're, we're really really into marvel right now as a family we're watching them all in order you know, just, you know, just things like that, hanging out with the family and, and, and just doing that is just, I love it. Absolutely. Again, central themes over and over again, exercise, nature, and family. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. All right. Well then if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places to find you online? Uh, they can find me on, uh, I haven't, I don't, I'm not really big on social media. I don't have Twitter. Um, I have Instagram. You can just look up Nathan Espinosa. Um, you could also, I mean, I have Facebook, Nathan Espinosa too. You can message me. Um, other than that, I 
I preferred like text and phone calls. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my number and you can, you know, re- give that out to people. But Facebook and Instagram is where I'm at. Perfect. All right. Well, Nathan, I want to just say thank you so much. I mean, as I say to a lot of people that, you know, relive some of their, their worst days in this podcast, I know, you know, that it takes a toll. I know that you, you know, that it, it causes a reaction. Of course, you're reliving it. But I also understand that the thousands of people that get to listen to this, you know, by telling that once the impact that it's going to have. So thank you so much for being so courageous and, you know, so transparent and telling your story today. Well, I mean, thank you for ever for doing this, because, you know, when you reached out, you know, I, I found your podcast and like you said, there's a lot of episodes. I have, I still have a lot of catching up to do, but <laughs> I, I, I watch it religiously. And there's some maybe that I don't finish all the way, but each episode that you, that you have a, you know, you have someone on, I get something out of. And it, what's nice to me is that commute to LA, it's a long commute. So I have that downtime to listen to your podcast and to, and to, you know, just listen. And it's it's part of my therapy is to listen to other other survivor stories and other other people who have gone through trauma or encouragement and it's it's part of my therapy is to have that you know hour and a half ride home and to put on a podcast and just sit in traffic and and I'm one of those LA traffickers that I don't care to be in traffic you know I prefer it because I get that downtime to you know I get that I get that extra thirty minutes to you know finish the podcast or something you know so. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out and, and, and having me a part of this show. And I, I really do appreciate it. And my wife, she, she's, you know, I, I know she'll appreciate it too. So thank you. Thank you.